Well, you're probably aware that uh, we had a recent primary election in Illinois, and if you got as many postcards and text messages and phone calls as I did, you're well aware that we had an election recently. Um, and, uh, you know, those things have uh, abated pretty well now, but uh, uh, November's coming, so they're, <laughs> they're going <laughs> to ramp up again. But, uh, but with the conclusion of uh, that primary in our state, uh, we now know that, uh, that uh, Governor Pritzker and Darren Bailey will be the two candidates running to be governor. That means that we'll either have four more years of our current governor or we'll have uh, someone brand new elected who's not been governor before. Um, now, for the sake of this discussion, and this is not a political statement in any way, but for the sake of this discussion, let's assume that Darren Bailey wins election and becomes our brand new governor. Now, even though he's not been our governor before, there probably won't be too many surprises uh, when he would, uh, uh, upon his taking office. Um, for one, the governor is not above the laws of the land, so we know that he's required to act within those laws. Um, for another thing, over the, over the coming months, there will be, again, more advertisements and there will be debates and things like that that will help us get to know Darren Bailey better. So this all means that whoever is elected governor in November, we have a pretty good idea of what to expect when their term begins. Now, in comparison to that, imagine that we live, two, uh, well, 3,000 years back in history. Let's try and put ourselves there. Imagine that we live in a land and we are ruled by a king of that land. And imagine that our land is attacked and our king and the army that he raised is defeated by the attacking king and his army. Now, the attacking king's victory means that he now rules our land. He now rules over us. But imagine that we knew absolutely nothing about him, maybe other than where he is from right, where his land is. Imagine that that is the only thing that we know about him. Might lead to some questions, wouldn't it? I mean, what type of king will he be? It's a question I think we would ask. Will he exile us? Will he heavily tax us? Will he largely leave us alone? I think those are questions we might ask. Will he force our sons to serve in his army? Will he force our daughters to be part of his harem? I mean, in that scenario, we might have those questions, and, and the question we can ask now is, how will those questions be answered? How would those questions be answered in that setting 3,000 years ago? Do we, do we just have to wait and see, kind of see how things unfold and develop, or is there some clue about what, what would be to come? Well, in the time of the Greeks, in the time of the Romans, there was something called a kerygma, Charisma. That was a, a proclamation that a new king would make, which would announce his victory, for one, but it would also declare the order of things under his rule. 
Okay, so the kerygma would be communicated via these heralds that would go out into the land, and they would travel around, and they would share this statement, and it would give an idea of what kind of king this was and how this king was going to rule his land, specifically how the subjects of the land ought to respond to the king. And it wasn't just the practice during the times of Greece and, and Rome, but it existed long before those empires as well. And so this would have been a familiar practice in the Old Testament as well. And in fact, it's something that I think we can see utilized at different spots in both the Old and the New Testaments as God communicates with his people in the world. Uh, one of God's purposes in choosing a nation for himself was so that he could declare to the world what his kingship would be like. His, his reign over Israel was meant to be a picture of his reign over, over the entire earth, over all creation. And so what I want to suggest this morning is, is that the psalm that we will be looking at, Psalm 96, that that is a, a kerygma, announcing to all creation that God reigns and then calling for a proper response to his reign. And so we'll get into that this morning. The, the first thing we need to know about Psalm 96 is that this is a kingly psalm, but it does not first appear here in Psalm 96. It actually first appears in the book of First Chronicles, and it's in connection with the Ark of the Covenant. So, you know, if you know about the Ark of the Covenant, that's the, the sacred box that God commanded his people to construct. And within the Ark was the Ten Commandments. There was a jar of manna. There was the budded staff of the high priest Aaron. But what was truly significant about the Ark of the Covenant was that it represented God's presence. So the Ark was then to be kept within the inner room of the tabernacle, it was to be carried with the nation as they moved on their journeys uh, toward the promised land. The ark was the first thing into the Jordan River upon which the waters parted so that the people could cross into the promised land. Uh, the ark was at the head of the procession that marched around Jericho when the walls fell there. Eventually, however, the ark was captured by the Philistines. Um, the Israelites found out the hard way that uh, their disobedience to God was not written off just because they had the Ark of the Covenant in their possession. So the Philistines captured the Ark. They possessed the Ark for a handful of months, and, and they came to realize that these plagues kept falling on the people in the towns wherever the Philistines had the Ark located. And so they came up with the bright idea, we need to send this back. <laughs> It's not doing us any good, so we're going to send the ark back. And so they did that. They returned the ark to the Israelites, and it was eventually brought to the Israelite town of Kiriath-Jerim, where it was placed in the house of Abinadab, and it stayed there for decades, the house of Abinadab. It was about this time that Israel, the people of Israel, demanded a king. And so God gave them a king, uh, appointed Saul as the first king. He reigned for 40 years and then was followed by David. And David was the one who led the charge and captured the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, after its capture, became both the location of the king's palace. David built his palace there. But it also became the permanent site for the tabernacle and then later the permanent temple 
And so because God's house was now permanently in Jerusalem, David decided it's time to bring the Ark of the Covenant and put it there in God's house. And so 1 Chronicles 16 gives us that account of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. And within that chapter, David gives this song of thanks, a large portion of which is an exact copy of what we see in Psalm 96. So that's a lot of history there. But all that being said, Psalm 96 is a song first sung declaring that God was finally reigning from his house in Jerusalem. It had been prophesied previously, but it was finally taking place. The ark had been brought to Jerusalem, and a a song was sung in connection with that. And then in addition to all of that, the history of Psalm 96, the location of the psalm within the book of Psalms Gives us, uh, gives us some, some hints about the importance of it as well. It, it highlights the kingly proclamation of God. The, the book of Psalms is divided into five separate books that all kind of have their own theme. So Psalm 90 through Psalm 106 focus on the nation of Israel being sent into exile and eventually coming back to the land and specifically back to the city of Jerusalem. These, those, those psalms in that section are psalms that are declaring that God still reigns from his throne. Even though the city was captured and the temple was burned and the people were sent to exile, they've come back and God is reigning once again. Reigning from the city specifically once again. And so if you kind of a quick look at the psalms around 96, they emphasize that. Psalm 93 starts with these three words. The Lord reigns. Psalm 97 starts with three words, the Lord reigns. Psalm 99, you can probably guess, starts with those three words, the Lord reigns. So in this section of of the book of Psalms, it is clear that God sits upon his throne and reigns from his throne. There's no question of that. The question is, what does that mean for God's people? What does that mean for the nations of the world? Where, what, what, is this, what is the kerygma that is going to explain what that means, that God is ruling and reigning? So, as I said earlier, I think Psalm 96 is that kerygma. And so we're going to read it and see what is proclaimed by the king through his heralds. Um, so the psalm really contains a message for three different groups of people. We're going to start with the first group that is addressed in verses 1 through 6. So I would encourage you to follow along with me. Psalm 96, 1 says, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So the first group that the herald speaks to in this kerygma is God's chosen people. 
That's who God is speaking to first, his people. Three times right off the bat, God's people are told to sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. And what are they to sing about? We see there God's salvation, God's glory, God's marvelous works. His people are to sing about it and proclaim it. And if we think about it, isn't that exactly what we would expect God's people to be singing about? And we've done that already this morning. Isn't that exactly what God's people should be singing about? The other two groups that we'll look at today in this, in this psalm are the nations of the world and, and creation as a whole. Are either of those two groups capable of speaking firsthand about God's salvation? They're not, right? Not in the way that God's people are. Not in the way that those who've been saved by him can truly sing a song of praise, declaring his marvelous works and and his glory within salvation. It has to be this first group that proclaims those things. And when we think about this psalm, you know, in history— We can think about the original group who sung this song at the arrival of the ark into the city of Jerusalem during the time of David. Or we can think about the exiles who have come back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple after their time in captivity. Both groups are qualified to speak of God's glory and and marvelous works in delivering them from their enemies. And when we think about ourselves, can't we, can't we say the same things today? Right? Aren't, aren't those of us who've been given victory over Satan and sin and death through the salvation secured by Jesus, through his death and resurrection, aren't we the only ones who are truly qualified to proclaim God's glory and marvelous works in salvation? Doesn't it have to be us today? One of the songs that we sang earlier spoke about my sinful soul being counted free. Can anyone else proclaim that truth except for God's people? One of the lines said, my life is safe with Christ on high. Can anyone else state that with honesty except for God's people? I mean, anyone can read the words. Anyone can even sing the song, right? Mouth of the words to the music, but... Only those who've experienced salvation in Jesus are truly able to proclaim the glorious and marvelous works of the Lord. It has to be us. Our God is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all the worthless idols and false gods of the nations Those verses say that splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. We have to be the ones to proclaim that to the world because only we are qualified and have experienced it and can truly speak from that experience in proclaiming that to the world. It's not something good that we can do if we just feel like it. It's not really optional. It is is what the king on his throne expects his people to do. He's powerfully and mightily saved us, and he expects us to make that known 
across the earth. It, it's in the kerygma that he is proclaiming as the king who reigns. And in a lot of ways, uh, the gospel message of Jesus is a kerygma in and of itself. And we are charged with proclaiming that to the world. You see it in Acts chapter 1 especially, when, uh, when Jesus is with his followers and sends them out. He calls them witnesses. He's, he's utilizing that well-known form of communication where a conquering king would commission his servants to announce his kingship throughout the whole land. We see Jesus doing that <clears throat> with his disciples. And the question for us is, are we doing that through our words and our actions, our relationships? Do, do people walk away from interactions with us convinced that God is on his throne and that he possesses splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. What would that look like for the rest of today? I mean, let's think as concretely as possible. For the rest of today, what would that look like if, if we were proclaiming that truth in all that we did, all that we said? You know, if it, because really, if, if God's people won't tell of his salvation from day to day, then who will? Who will? Who can if it's not God's people doing it? So in Psalm 96, the statement from the king, that's what it starts with. God's people called to proclaim God's salvation and splendor and majesty across the earth. But there are also responses called for from other groups as well, as I said. He's, he speaks next to those who are not his people, at least not presently his people. So look at verse 7 with me. It goes on and says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So that phrase in verse 7, families of the people, that refers to the nations of the world. Nations of the world. Even, even those not currently a part of God's people must recognize his kingship. You know, in, in past history, when, it, when a king invaded and defeated another, another nation, it didn't matter whether or not the, the people of that nation wanted that new individual to be their king. It didn't matter. He was the king, whether they liked it or not. And they needed to recognize his reign or else face the consequences that would come with rebellion and refusal. God reigns from his throne, and the people of the world, right, the, the families of the peoples, the nations of the world, they are called to respond, to decide how they will respond to the king who reigns. The call by the herald here is, is to rightly recognize God's kingship. Right? Ascribe to him glory and strength that is his. Ascribe to him the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, tremble before him. Uh, you know, the picture painted there 
is, is one in which pride has to be set aside. It has to be. It, it takes humility to ascribe glory and strength to another. Uh, it takes humility to bring an offering to someone above you. It takes, uh, it takes humility to worship in the form spoken of here by the Hebrew term. Uh, the, the Hebrew word speaks of a bowing down, <clears throat> a literal, physical bowing before someone else. That takes humility to do that. So the nations and people of the world are called to come to God in humility. But let's try and put ourselves there if we can. This king is reigning. It's not our king, but we're called to come before him. That could be a little scary, could it not? I mean, after all, if I were not submissive to the ruler and then I was summoned to stand before them, how would I expect to be treated? How might that interaction go? And even if I changed my mind and I did humble myself before them and I pledged submission to them moving forward, how do I know they're going to respond to me in kindness? I mean, how do I know they don't just kill me right on the spot? I mean, that, that, can, be a, that can be a nerve-wracking place to be, right? I mean, we need to recognize the fear that might be with this, with this call that goes out to the nations. But what this kerygma does is it assures the nations of the world that they will be shown fairness when they come humbly before the king. I mean, look at verse 10 again. I mean, listen to it with those kind of ears. Right at the end of verse 10, he will judge the peoples with equity. God is righteous. He's, he's right in all that he does. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, equity and righteousness can, can bring, us, bring a person relief, or it could bring dread, really, depending on the attitude of the one standing before the king. You know, if a person comes in humility and repentance, then God's equity is something to rejoice about and find comfort in. But if a person comes in pride and refuses to bow to the king, then God's equity is something to fear, very much so. So the Lord reigns and he judges all with equity. And if the peoples of the nations of the world will come to him in humility, they will be welcomed into his kingdom. That, that's the message of the kerygma here. And as we think about this and, and, you know, the history of it and hearing it in that time, we can hear it in our time as well. And, and maybe this middle portion describes, describes you today. Maybe you wouldn't currently consider yourself one of God's people, but you can know that he welcomes you to come to him and, and ascribe to him the glory that he is due. You know, you can, you can listen to the proclamations that you've heard around you today of God's people proclaiming his, his might and his salvation and his glory, and you can be assured that when you come before God in humility, you too can find that same deliverance from sin and death. All, all people are going to stand before the king at one point or another. It's all going, it's going to happen at some point. The proclamation here, the encouragement here is to come to the king in the attitude of humility, I think, that this, that this psalm uh, calls for. 
So we see this message that goes out, right? God's people are to proclaim his salvation, proclaim his greatness in all the earth. The nations are called to come and humbly uh, bow before the king. And then finally, creation, all creation is called to rejoice in God's righteous and faithful judgment. So listen to verses 11 through 13. It says, let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. Let the earth roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So when the herald of this message is, you know, speaking to two different groups of people in the first two sections, here he's speaking to the non-human parts of creation. And so in, in, in the words to the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fields and the trees, there, there's a difference between what he's saying there to what he says to the people in the first two groups. The, the commands in the first two groups are direct commands. Sing, 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 and ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Those are, those are direct commands. And, and those are people, right? People you can talk to and reason with and, and hopefully convince to respond in that way. But you can't do that with a rock or a flower or, or these non-human parts of creation, right? So rather than a direct command in verses 11 through 13, the, the instructions are more passive, just let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, let the field exult. But why? I mean, why should creation do that? What's the, what's the reasoning there? And I would say because God's reign over mankind extends to all of creation as well. And, and creation's deliverance is tied in with the deliverance of mankind. And so this, in, uh, Paul famously talks about this in Romans chapter 8. And, and so there he says things like, Creation waits with eager, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, he says, Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation rejoices that the Lord reigns because that means that it too will take part in the wonderful kingdom over which he reigns. So the, the righteous and faithful judge will not only show himself to be, to be so in his interactions with humans, but with all of creation. And when I think about that, I... I Man, it really gets my imagination going. I mean, I can't tell you exactly what that means for creation, right? I think we're given some hints in Scripture. Isaiah talks about a time that will come when the, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat. I mean, it seems like it refers to hostility between different parts of creation coming to an end. Um, uh, it seems probable that, uh, that the enmity between mankind and creation will come to an end in God's kingdom. So no longer will the rest of creation need to fear us, and no longer will we need to fear any part of creation. So spiders and all those things that can raise up fear within us, that that's gone, right? But beyond that, I mean, we just, we don't know the exact details, 
of what that means for all creation. But whatever it is, creation waits with eager longing and in the meantime is called here to rejoice and roar that the king is reigning from his throne and that, and that the long-forward future that they're looking forward to will soon be reality. It is going to take place. Whatever the details of it are, it will take place. And so creation is called to, 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 uh, to rejoice, to proclaim that. So that's the kerygma. If we ask the question, if Jesus is the king reigning on the throne, then what's that mean for us? And I think Psalm 96 spells that out quite well. This applies, again, both to that time in David's life when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem for the first time. It applies when the exiles were coming back to Jerusalem. But that, those times of reigning aren't the only ones in view when we read this psalm. As I've been saying, this kerygma in, in Psalm 96 applies to us today as well, because God still reigns. God is still reigning from his throne. And he does so finally and forever as the result of his death and resurrection. Right? Jesus went toe-to-toe with the enemy and was victorious. He showed himself mightily to be the king. He was not defeated. His throne is secure, and it will never be shaken. The king reigns. And the gospel message that we take out into the world is that kerygma, which, which proclaims to us, proclaims to the world that God reigns. And, w- and it proclaims what his reign is like as well. It's a proclamation of salvation that we're, we're really called to tell day to day, day by day as we go throughout our lives. It's a, it's a message telling of his glory that we must declare to the nations. All of us, all of us who have received salvation in Jesus are given that charge. We are heralds sent out to proclaim that message. So that means proclaiming the kerygma, proclaiming the gospel in our homes. It means proclaiming it in our workplaces. It means proclaiming it in our schools, uh, when we go out to eat. It means proclaiming the kerygma in a foreign country, if God calls us to do so. You know, my, my hunch is that all of us can identify a place where God is specifically calling us to be a herald of that good news. And the question then is, are, are we fulfilling that role of herald? We've been sent out. Are we proclaiming it as we're called to do? And, and if not, what's stopping us? And it's not just a rhetorical question. I mean, literally, what is stopping us from proclaiming that? I mean... It very well could be, could be that, that God is calling someone here in our midst today, young or old, to be a herald of the good news in a foreign land. Maybe that's a new call that, that you felt recently. Maybe that's an old call that someone has felt for years but has resisted. But, but a question could be, what, what would stop me? What is stopping me? What might stop me from doing that? Um, uh, as I was doing work on, on today's sermon a couple weeks ago, I was just feeling this prompting from God to, to ask that 
question specifically about proclaiming the gospel in a foreign land. And normally when I'm thinking through my sermon and working on it and, and, and thinking about application points specifically, um, I'm usually trying to be broad enough that, that everyone can, can apply what I'm saying in whatever context we find ourselves. That, that, that's usually my goal in that. And I've, and I've still tried for that this morning, but, but it seemed like God was saying, speak directly about someone sensing a call to serve as a missionary in a foreign land. I just, I just as I was working on that, couldn't get away from that. And in the midst of all of that, I had forgotten, I mean, it was on the calendar, but two different parts of my brain that hadn't connected at that point. I forgot that Chris and Sarah were going to be here this morning, sharing with us from a foreign land about their call and the ministry there. And then, wouldn't you know it, Gary and Cindy said, hey, we're traveling up to Milwaukee. Can we show up Sunday morning and give a report? And here they stand up here talking about the, the mentor training and how India, and I've already forgotten the other nations that you mentioned, but nations of the world that, uh, that they're seeking to impact. And then, wouldn't you know it, last minute, Brian and Jen said, hey, can we come give an update about our ministry and what's been going on and, and working with crew and college students, some who've come to America, I'm sure, from all over the world, and you get to interact with them. And so I stand here saying, I don't know what God's doing there. I, maybe somebody in here does. But, you know, all I guess, I, I guess all I can say is if, if you're sensing God prompting you in that area of foreign missions, there's your sign, right? I mean, I did not, it might seem like I tried to coordinate this. N not a bit. So, and you know, and, and Gary mentioned it, church being a sending church, and that's true, and there's people who've, who've got, people who've sat right here that God has called before to go out and proclaim that message, and so if, if the Holy Spirit's bugging you this morning, let me bug you a little bit too, and, and kind of prompt you to listen to that, and, and again, I, I honestly have nobody specific in mind, I'm not, you know, but if, if God's talking to you, then please don't ignore that call. Please don't ignore the call that we see in verse 3 of Psalm 96 to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. God raises up his people to do that. And we're all called to do it here. There's no getting out of that. But, man, if God's calling you to go somewhere farther away, and maybe uncomfortable in that way, don't ignore it. Listen to it. I'm not saying it won't be scary. I'm not telling you exactly how it'll work out, but, but please don't ignore that this morning. So with that, let's, let's stand before God and maybe be commissioned again. I think it's, I think it's good for all of us to, to recognize this commission that we are given as his people to proclaim his message. Father and King, we come before you this morning and we recognize who you are. We recognize that you are the king. You are reigning from your throne, and we're so thankful for that. Uh, that truly is a wonderful reality. We're blessed to be people in your kingdom. But part of that blessing is, is being sent out to proclaim the message, to proclaim the news God, would you, would you be guiding each one of us in that? Wherever we go each day, wherever we go the rest of today, God, would you, would you help us to live out that calling to be your herald?
God, there can, I know there can be, I can feel, feel uh, fears in that. I can feel uncertainty in that and worry and stress. And God, would you just, uh, maybe even more than taking it away, would you just remind us that you're, you're there, you're present, you're with us, you've, you've given us everything that we need. God, I pray for, I pray for hearts, the hearts of those around us, that there would be a reception to that proclamation. God, and I pray specifically for anyone here that may be sensing your calling to, to go farther, to physically go farther overseas to a people different from us to proclaim a message that is equally valid in that location as well. God, would you be working on their hearts this morning? I, I, I ask that you wouldn't, you wouldn't relent, <laughs> but that you would continue to call and to beckon them. God, and I thank you how we as a church can participate in those callings, whether it's us individually or whether it's our brothers and sisters next to us in the pew, that we can support one another in that. I thank you for the reminder this morning of how we've been able to do it in the past, how we can continue doing that here in, in the future. God, it's such a blessing. Your love is so incredible that it is worth proclaiming to the world. And so God, as we continue now in worshiping through song, it's not just something that we do. God, we are called to sing to you and proclaim your salvation. And so as we do that now, would you be honored? Would you be glorified? And would you work in our hearts as we do that as well? We pray this in your name. Amen.